Hey everyone, if you like this podcast, go behind the paywall to get privileged access to the smartest minds in finance. Join the Real Vision community and learn how to become a better investor. Visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code podcast10 to get 10% off our central membership for the first year. And now to today's episode. Great part of my job is I get to speak to all sorts of different people in the whole Web3 space. From the people building the protocols to the crazy artists building the future to the hedge funds who invest in it, to the institutions. And Richard Galvin has been around this space for a long time, really smart guy. Um, and I really want to talk to him, how he manages his hedge fund capital in the space, what he's thinking, what the opportunities are, and some of the lessons he learned en route. The world of crypto is an incredibly exciting journey that we're all going on together. We don't know where it's leading to, but we know it's going to be absolutely massive. Join me, Ral Pal, as I guide you on our adventure to discover just what this new world will look like. Richard, good to see you on Real Vision. Thanks for having me. You've been on before, but not chatting to me, right? No, correct. Spoke to Ash. It's probably a couple of years back now. So give people a bit of your story, A, how you got into this stupid game in the first place and what you're doing now. Yeah, so I actually, probably a little different background to a lot of people in the space. I came through investment banking. So I was a, a, a tech and media banker at Goldman and JP Morgan for about 20 years and uh, came through. When, when got, were you at Goldman? Uh, from, to, well, I was at the Australian firm, JB Weir, that Goldman bought in the early 2000s. And then I left in 2010. So I was... Uh, was Bushy there with you? Uh, Dave Nolan? Uh, mm-hmm. Not that I recall. I don't know him, but we, uh, right. I, 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 was a, I was an analyst in the M&A TMT team down here when Goldman bought out, uh, uh, bought out our Australia business uh, and then moved in and ended up running that as a co-head of the TMT group down here covering that, you know, the, effectively the, 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 the disruption the internet kind of caused across our traditional clients on the media space and helping some of the tech guys kind of cause that disruption. So that was part of the flavor, I guess, that got me into crypto, eventually kind of seeing the second wave of that potentially rolling out. When when was that? Have, give yeah, me a crypto so I, journey a bit more closely because yeah, so I'll I'm, just wave I'm, your hand and say, yeah, I did TMT and then, I, <laughs> and then suddenly I run a crypto hedge fund. Yeah, so I, 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 as you can tell, I'm probably a little bit older than a bunch of people in this space. And so I started in that You're older than me and I've been in this space since 2013. <laughs> Well, you're part of that journey as well, but I'll get to that in a sec. So, started uh, started in banking in '96, and uh, was you know the youngest guy in the banking team. So, these crazy sort of tech ideas came across the desk of the of the old partners. They all sort of flipped it down to me as the young guy to try and get my head around it. So, spent a whole bunch of time with those entrepreneurs thinking through sort of disruptive business cases, disruptive models, and how they impact, I guess, or how after the genesis of those ideas and how they rolled them out, and then. You know, the nice thing about being a banker is you get to play both sides and, uh, you know, working with our clients down here, working with the, with the media companies, thinking about how they defend themselves against that disruption and got to see kind of a, a ringside seat as to how hard that is, uh, and how ill prepared they were for doing that. Um, and, you know, worked across that space for the next 20 years at, at Goldman, JP Morgan and, and left in 2016 after think after sort of realizing 20 years is well enough as a banker. <laughs> Thought about what to do next, and um, 
uh, kind of had two goals. And, uh, you know, the first goal was not to be a banker ever again. Um, and <laughs> yeah, we've all done that. Yeah, and I achieved that. So that's, you know, goal number one done. Goal number two was to take six months off. And I actually dismally failed at that because a, a good friend of mine who'd been hassling me to look at Bitcoin for a couple of years said, look, you've got nothing to do now. You've got no excuse. Um, why don't you spend some time thinking about this and give me the sort of the skeptical banker's view? And so I started to look at, you know, started where a lot of people start, read the white paper, watched a, you know, a couple of videos, read a few things. One of them was actually your 2014 GMI piece on Bitcoin. Oh, right. And it kind of clicked. Like it just kind of, because I've always been, as a lot of Australians are, there's a little bit of gold bugging as well. And <laughs> that sort of, uh, that sort of that tech angle, that kind of monetary angle, uh, that sort of potential gold angle, it just sort of resonated with me. And it just sort of, yeah, so I thought this looks pretty similar to some of those crazy ideas I saw back in 1996. It's got you know, no institutional kind of adoption at all. Uh, it's been kind of shunned by the traditional traditional people across all sorts of angles that could be. And then I started to look where it traded and saw some of the markets where it was trading. I got sort of super excited about the tech behind that, how people were sort of recreating things that I didn't think you could recreate. I mean, you, you pick up a lot of baggage when you work in the traditional banking space and you think this is the way things are done because they have to be done this way. I think what this space kind of was refreshingly teaching was, no, it doesn't have to be done that way. And there's a bunch of people that had some thought through how markets needed to work that didn't have the value that I had. And so they could bring that kind of fresh kind of lens to how things could be done if you weren't encumbered by sort of 50 years of baggage about how they needed to be done and sort of found it super exciting and so I started to invest and realized that, you know, I didn't want to take six months off. This is what I wanted to do next. So I started setting up the ACM early 2017 and we've been running money since uh, August 2017 across largely venture and our biggest strategy, which is, you know, liquid long only. And uh, long only is asking for, uh, asking for a stressful life in crypto because we stay long the market, good or bad. So... I mean, a great time to start and a terrible time to start as well. There's no good time to start in crypto. You're always going to get the drawdown somewhere. So talk me through how that felt. So you get in, you've done your thesis, you know it's volatile. And 2017, you look like a hero for a period of time, I'm guessing. Yeah, so we actually launched our first public fund with new investors in 15th of January 2018. So we'd been, <laughs> uh, we'd been, we'd been, we'd been meeting a lot of people through 2017 We'd raised some money in sort of late 2017. We'd actually sat on it because the market was just, you know, as you probably remember, it was pretty insane that sort of November, December period, 2017, and we were pretty nervous. And so we made the, uh, what, what, what we thought was the right call to sit on our hands, which ended up being right. And then, you know, the LPs we were talking to, you know, stayed in discussion with them and said, look, you know, we just want to wait this out and see what happens. And then, you know, the market started to fall pretty dramatically that sort of early, early January period. And, Mark was off 40% and pretty much the first sort of two weeks of January. And we spoke to those LPs and they said, this is what, this is what we were waiting for. Uh, let's pull the, yeah, are you going to pull the trigger or not? And we sort of thought, well, yeah, yeah, Bitcoin was back down at like 13,000 or something. Let's, let's dive in now that we've seen the pullback and then, yeah, the market <laughs> continued to fall another 80% from there. So it was a baptism for that baptism of fire, uh, but it's a good way to test your conviction. It is. And it is, yeah, you know, I've, First time I bought it, it fell. It went up quite a lot and then fell 85%. And once you've gone through that once or twice, you kind of know what it's about. 
And I think you've got to be able to, you know, with the asymmetry on the upside that this space can have, you need to have that conviction to hold through the down, for the, through those down periods and to kind of look at what's real and what's not and keep reminding yourself of why you own these assets to be able to make, you know, the full potential on the upside. Or if you can't, yeah, I'm a believer that markets, there's symmetry in markets and, you know, what you can make a lot of money with on the upside, you need to also be prepared to, you know, sort of ride on the downside as well. Yeah, there's no such thing as a free lunch, you know. You, Correct. To get the to get asymmetric upside, you tend to have higher volatility. It's just how it is. How much parallel did you draw from the internet period? Because you saw a lot of this same kind of volatility. I mean, people forget that Amazon was down ninety seven percent after IPO, stuff like that. Did you kind of part of that was your framework? Is like, yeah, I know how new technology adoption works. It's volatile. Yeah. I think from both a market's perspective and both the you know, institutional mindset, it was just so similar. Um, yeah, had being that young guy that was sort of diving into the what I thought was the internet opportunity back in the late '90s and early 2000s, and talking to institutions about them as they sort of came off through that period, that you know, as we spoke about the, the Amazon fall and and getting all the similar kind of pushback about why you know that tech was dead, why did we ever believe you could make money out of advertising and all those sorts of things, just to sort of see that similar kind of dismissive view on the institution side as well, kind of make me even more bullish. Uh, there's a good there's a good parallel down here. There's a there's a business called uh, yeah realestate.com.au. It's it's a it's an incredible franchise now that basically dominates advertising online advertising to residential retail. Uh, in the early 2000s, I got thrown, I got, got thrown the job of actually trying to set up an institutional roadshow in that business after it sold off, you know, nine and something percent. And I remember just getting like these ridiculous, uh, just giving this massive pushback from all institutional investors. We were trying, you know, we were trying to help them get back in front of, and just getting told about you know, how ridiculous it was that we ever thought you could make money out of advertising on the internet. Um, how yeah, how, how this was just such a stupid broken business model, and yeah, this was just something like this is last year's story. We never want to speak about these again. I think that business was trading around about thirteen cents a share back then. I think today, I've looked it's around sixty dollars, right? And and it's become the dominant franchise. It basically bankrupted a whole bunch of local media players by stealing the entire residential retail advertising market. But it was a good thing to go through to understand how sort of, you know, consensus mindset can be completely wrong uh, and very short-term focused and doesn't understand, I guess, the cycles and the, the trial and error that disruptive tech has to go through to prove itself. So let's go back to the 2018-19 period. So you've worn the drawdown. You've seen, you know, you've suffered the worst of it. What did you do at the bottom of the market? Did you have any signals or were you still super nervous holding as much cash as possible? How did you get your conviction back? Because people are going to struggle. You know, I think the market's turned. I think we, we, I would call it crypto spring where it's volatile and it's finding its base and it's squeezy. Um, but Christ, nobody wants to believe it. <laughs> the, um, uh, uh, the final capitulation piece uh, that we saw actually went up to Hong Kong um, to me with you know, a bunch of counterparties of people I respected, and and there's two funds, or there's two investors that you know, had, had, had a lot of respect for that sort of ridden the journey over the last two years. With um, both of them, within the space of about two weeks, shut down their kind of long only investing franchise, uh, and they both said to me that there's no money to be made in long crypto. We're just going to move to a, you know, to a market neutral trading type focus 
we don't we don't think there's long term potential here as a as a as a as a as an actual investor. We're just going to turn to our trading business. And oddly, that was kind of the flag to me that that was kind of the final capitulation piece. These, these were you know highly sophisticated guys that had been in the space a number of years. Um, and they were kind of like the last pennies to drop. And I remember we came back from Hong Kong and I got my TLPs and shareholders on the phone. I said, look, this really looks like the final capitulation for me. This, yeah, these, these are people I would never expect to have abandoned the strategies they've been working the last few years. Uh, and I said, we're, at, yeah, we're in a binary place here. We're either the last idiots in the room that don't get it. Well, this is the absolute key capitulation flag. Um, and that was late December, 2018. And then ended up being the, the, the perfect read, the, the perfect read for us. And, and we as, we as LPs put it, put a bunch more money into our funds. And then, you know, the kind of the rest is history from there, just incredible running from that sort of late 18, 2019 period onwards. So that 2018, 19 period actually got more complicated because there was more stuff to invest in. And the real returns would be driven not by Bitcoin any longer, but by finding stuff. So how did you, what did you do to navigate the bull market from 2019 yeah, I think onwards? Coming into this space. And also that, also that pullback that happened 2019, it kind of decoupled from equities and everything else and just went down for ages and then finally exploded. Yeah, I think yeah, the, the, the first half 2019, you have to top of my, I think 5x pretty much from the bottom there, has did a lot of the, lot of the holes. I mean, our strategy from day one has always been um, very much focused around yeah. a portfolio and there's going to be multiple trillion dollar plus winners in this space. So we've, we've always believed that this technology is much broader than say a Bitcoin or an Ethereum and the use cases here are, are vast and varied and just like we saw in the internet, that technology, disruptive technology chooses kind of subsectors or to use internet speak verticals to disrupt, but it doesn't stop at one or two. It moves through an economy over time. It just takes time to kind of earn its stripes, it just takes time to kind of build up the experience, both an entrepreneurial and engineering level to sort of move on to the next thing. And so we always had had this view that that would be how this space would play out and therefore we need to be positioned across a whole lot of opportunity to benefit from that. Um, 2019 period was really the, the, the validation from my perspective around, uh, yeah, having said that Bitcoin was the dominant sort of play through 2019. If you look at the market, I think Bitcoin was up hundred percent 2019. If you remove Bitcoin, the market was almost exactly flat. So it was kind of the only place to make money. And We'd actually sort of made the call that that would be the sort of proving ground. That would that, that is that that is what would happen in 2019 is as you know the selling sort of stopped and we slowly saw money come back into the space. Bitcoin would rise on liquidity and we'd finally see that sort of institutional type adoption as it went from its as, as that sort of realization changed from its top game to zero. The return profile looked pretty different. Right? As soon as you you take that out of the equation, the the risk reward looks a lot better and. Yeah, there's some hedge fund players like the Paul Tudor Jameses and that of the world that sort of picked that up first and and really started to run with that. And our view was that as as people realised that was the case and as it started to take up that position that you kind of first saw back in 2014 about this alternative asset within the sort of macro stack, we'd see a pretty big re-rating as we started to see more liquidity because you know, as it gets adopted into the macro stack, it needs to get more liquid sort of suit people like that that trade with those sorts of quantities of assets. 
the only way you can do that, given supply is constrained, is to go up your price. And that's kind of what we saw through 2019 and early 2020 is we saw that sort of the, particularly that sort of macro hedge fund adoption. We saw substantial re-rating of, of Bitcoin as it sort of led the pack and that sort of, that, 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 that attracted capital and proved to the wider world that, that, yeah, this was an investable asset class that wasn't going to like. Did you figure out Ethereum early on in that? So was Ethereum part of your strategy early on or did you catch on to it later? Yeah, so Ethereum was actually the first asset that I'd invested in off my own balance sheet um, from day one. So the first experience, the way I built conviction in the space after sort of doing that preliminary work and and getting that sort of the, the, the kernel, the idea that there was something here, was to try and bring it back into the world I guess I'd come from and try and put some, you know, put some metrics around it to try and understand, you know, what's the, what's the upside here and what's the, what's the value disparity between where you could get to. And so, you know, after I'd spent that sort of first initial two week or week through the space, I actually sort of stood back, took another two or three weeks and actually built a full model of Ethereum, sort of, you know, leaning back on my banking experience, the sort of model that you'd build for a, for an M&A deal or an IPO or a, a fairness opinion right? and, and spent a few weeks trying to sort of bring this new tech back into the old framework that, you know, I'd been taught at those investment banks for 20 years and everything I did around valuing that asset using a whole bunch of different metrics and approaches of which, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of art, not all science, because it's a new asset class and, you know, how do you, how do you actually sort of build a P and L and, and a cash flow type approach to these sorts of assets? Everything I did at that point pointed to Ethereum being worth about $130. And this is you know, early 2017 when it's trading at single digits. And I stress tested that model for weeks and I just couldn't find a hole. And so that's actually just following that kind of, that was the final piece that gave me full conviction that it feels right at a thematic level and the value, the value is just wrong here versus where these asset, assets can be. And so made a pretty substantial uh, personal investment in, in Ethereum. And that's when I start to sort of set up this business over the next year, putting the pieces together to launch DACM. So let's wind forward to now. Um, it's been a shit show of a year. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, everybody who could have blown up, anybody who was offering any sort of leverage on top of anything got blown up, which is interesting because we kind of built the old banking system all over again and then blew it up all over again because it's never good to build leverage as your business model on an 80-vol asset, which I think everyone has now learned because, because you go bust really fast. What are you looking at now? Where are you, Where's your head at in terms of where this market is? Where does it feel like? Yeah, I, I think we look back at... Um, uh, we, we, we look back unashamedly leaning upon that sort of internet experience to think about the development of the tech here and... and we think we're at that sort of interesting crossroads of that sort of dial up to broadband type leap that the tech needs to make. Um, so putting market movements to one side, and we can cover that in a minute, but we think the technology has kind of proven itself in that sort of sandbox of sort of tech uh, users that are willing to spend the time, willing to watch a YouTube video to work out how to use an app. Um, and we think it's proven itself that it can add utility in that sort of framework and it can recreate a whole lot of services and can create a whole lot of new ones um, and create that sort of disruptive tech. But we're at that point where it needs to sort of make that jump, just like the internet did back in sort of late 90s, early 2000s to reach that sort of mass market. The people that just want to use a product because it's got more utility 
rather than, you know, it's a blockchain or it's this or that. I just want to be able to plug, click and have one app that's better than the one they've been using to do something for, for five years. And so we think the tech is an exciting sort of inflection point where it sort of scales now from the hundreds of thousands of millions of users to the hundreds of millions of users to billions of users, where it needs to now start wrapping that sort of that much better user interface, much faster, much more sort of point and click type usability and use that sort of infrastructure and the capacity that we've been building for the last few years to really sort of scale to that next sort of step. Now that's a, that's a hard lead to take and that takes time and that takes a lot of experience, but that's kind of the hard yards. I think the entrepreneurs and the, the engineers in the space been doing over the last sort of two or three years building that skill set to then launch at the same time as we've been building multiple blockchains to provide the capacity we need to, to offer these sorts of services and capability. And I'm trying to think through the kind of future of the blockchain space. I don't, we probably don't know all the, the top five incumbents in several years time in five, 10 years time, but do you think it's going to be the typical distribution where one company, one blockchain has 80% and it scales down or something like that? I mean, what's, what's your working hypothesis in your head of, of what it looks like? Cause it's unlikely cause we've seen all technology. It tends to accrue to a few, whoever yep. that is. Yeah. Yeah. So we think there will be a few multi-trillion dollar assets in this space, uh, without a doubt, over the next sort of, you know, five to 10 years. We've always had a view that um, we've always been focused largely around proof of stake because we always thought that would be the, be the future. We, not that we think Bitcoin will ever change from being proof of work. We just couldn't see a, a world where we had multiple multi-trillion dollar blockchains all relying upon proof of work type, proof of work type consensus and, and, and the resources that requires. So, We've, we've been an early adopter and early, you know, we've run the infrastructure on proof of stake chains. We used to run a dash master node and others. So way back, way back when in 2017. So we've always thought there'd be multiple blockchains and that those blockchains would effectively form a specialization. And that specialization, because there's not infinite block space on a blockchain, that specialization would effectively crowd out other users. Um, but those users wouldn't disappear. They'd find another blockchain to effectively take their business or their application to and adopt that blockchain. So our map has always been there'd be a there'd be a there'd be a, a there'd be a landscape with multiple trillion dollar plus blockchain type infrastructure, and those blockchains would have some form of specialization that suited the application that the, that was running on. And you look, even Bitcoin's an example of that, right? So as a store of value. Um, as a as a chain as an asset that you effectively want to be able to keep in a vault or ever, however you store your your private keys, you don't want that asset longer term to change, right? Like you don't want to have to take your seed phrase out of the vault and be faced with a technology that's you know, completely different than when you put it in the vault, or has undergone a whole lot of forks across that journey and taken a whole lot of you know, potential new attack vectors into that asset, right? So. In a way, Bitcoin's success as a store of value as that sort of, yeah, that highly liquid sort of macro stack asset also means that it doesn't change and it can't, and it, and it can't progress aggressively because the holders don't actually want that to happen. You know, people want Bitcoin to stay as it is. They don't want it to take the risks that Ethereum's taken. But that's kind of opened the, opened the window for Ethereum to sort of dive out and take that risk and take multiple upgrades and and take that sort of risk because it's yeah you know, it needed to do that to sort of keep itself relevant 
that's the culture of Ethereum, and that's you know, it sort of filled that void about well, why, you know, what can we, how can we change this to allow you know, all these certain different things to be built? And it's always been in Ethereum's interest to take that risk. Now, Ethereum's then been super successful at, at, at DeFi, which was a, a, a thing we identified would be that sort of first use case that crypto would really sort of fill sort of prove out, just like our media was for the internet. But that means, you know, as we've seen through multiple periods, that Ethereum can get super expensive, right? And people, smaller investors or smaller users get crowded out. Um, and it becomes the domain of people like us that are just moving, you know, big, big volumes and that, you know, uh, overly fussed by a, a fee that's gone for 40 cents to $5 when you're moving a $10 million asset. So, but those users don't go away. They go and find another chain that's got high throughput, lower fees or whatever it is that sets their business model. And we've seen that play out particularly over 2021, 2022, that chains sort of form an ecosystem that has some form of specialization that suits their capabilities, be it low fees, high transaction processing, robustness, security, whatever it may be. And, and that, you know, when they're successful, that crowds out other potential use cases and they sort of follow that path. And it shouldn't, you know, just like Bitcoin became that sort of, that store of value type asset. It shouldn't be seen as a failure. That's the ultimate success, right? That's the sort of the healthy use of that chain and that gives it relevance and that sort of gives it the pathway forward, but it does leave opportunities for others to come up and fill that sort of gap in the market. And that's how we've, uh, we've set up portfolio to sort of follow those, those increments as people sort of find new, find new use cases. So um, let's just go through some of the, the layer ones. And we'll talk a bit about layer twos and we'll talk about the applications layers as well. So, so layer one, state of layer ones right now, what interests you outside of, you know, obviously Bitcoin and ETH? Yeah, I think we've been uh, we've been, been uh, long-term holders of Solana and uh, Cosmos Adder. So we think that in that view of uh, that multi-chain view of the world that we have, the assets you want to own are assets that bring something different to the table. So, you know, whilst we think there's a future for multiple EVM chains out there, you know, we've deliberately chosen Ethereum, Solana, uh, Cosmos Atom and that ecosystem as those three representations of those different attributes that people will be looking over time. All three of those chains are very different in terms of you know their tech and in terms of the the use cases that they're best suited for. And so we think that's a, a good representation for us to sort of express that view of a multi-chain world where apps look for those sort of different attributes to build upon. Yeah, and I've you know I've you know I've been interested in Solana for a while now. And just one thing, it just seems if there's one narrative that they seem to own, it's that it's that consumer blockchain. Yeah, and and, it and they've is, kind of gone after that. Yeah, they have, and that sort of like super fast processing speed and the ability to do things at super low transactions, right? Which is kind of that the counterpoint to I mentioned earlier about the fees on Ethereum uh, moving much higher, which you know, again, yeah, is, is a success for Ethereum in terms of driving revenue and returns and those sorts of things, but it leaves that sort of opportunity for a, for a Solana, which is a completely different piece of tech, where you can effectively move or transact in an NFT that might only be worth a dollar, right? Like it makes it does makes no sense to do that on Ethereum, but it can makes a bunch of sense to do that on Solana, and so that's the market opportunity for for them to sort of fit that sort of fit that void. Did you manage to buy more when it sold off to what? I don't know what it got to, eight bucks or something? It's crazy. Yeah, we, we, we did top up. So we've actually been long Solana. We've been long Solana since mid 2020. So I can, uh, we've actually got an entry price of 22 cents. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> probably one of the, 
probably the, probably the best trade we've ever done or the best the best buy we've ever done. We bought, bought about 1% of Solana, 22 cents back in uh, mid-2020. And um, uh, we've held a lot of that through. We've, can, we've, we've sold some along the way as we'd have to, or we'd basically be a Solana ETF. But we've sold, a bunch <laughs> of that, we've sold a bunch of that through the journey, but we've still got some of those original 22 cent tokens that we bought all the way back then. We did actually, for the first time, buy a little bit more sub $10. We missed that sort of eight, seven fifty, but we got a little bit pulled back in single digits. It was just a the perfect crypto example of how extreme the noise can be. And it, it's in both directions, right? Unashamedly in both directions. At the top it's as crazy as it is at the bottom. But that sort of point late late last year was just kind of insane. Um we actually we we we, we put a lot of money into the market back in uh that's in last week of late late last year. It had felt like one of those rare opportunities where you had a whole bunch of you know, price insensitive sellers, be it liquidators, be it redemptions, be it ditch funds trying to get crypto off their books. Um, and as one of the, and you know, as we were sort of sitting in the books on the buy site, it was a pretty lonely place to be, I can tell you. But it, it just felt like one of those sort of rare windows where markets kind of give you that sort of opportunity. So we deployed up. We were to redeploy all the cash we potentially, all the cash we had on our lot of portfolios into that. Layers you. Yeah I, think layer, well, or... yeah, I think layer two is interesting. We 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 don't have uh, we don't have a bunch of exposure at this point in time. I think the interesting kind of thing to sort of think through is the yeah how does a layer two sort of stack up versus a Solana and does a layer two versus a Solana who wins that kind of race, right? And uh, I think what we uh, get excited about though, this is the kind of the, the fulfillment of that vision of us sort of moving from that text that tech sandbox, you know, the things like Solana, the things like the layer two, they're all the infrastructure that's required to make this tech so much more user-friendly for the, for the, the tech agnostic user out there, right? The ability to sort of scale and provide faster transaction throughputs and all those sorts of things are, are the key that's going to take this forward. So what gets you excited in the space? Um, you know, what are you seeing on the applications? Because you've got VC side as well, right? So you get, yep. act to see, get to see applications being built. You know, we, you know, it was the CEO of Microsoft is like, you know, blockchain, it will have its chat GPT moment at some point where somebody comes up with a killer application that scales. I mean, it could even be the central bank digital currencies, which <laughs> everybody would hate, but it's a start, right? Um, what are you thinking? Yeah, I think we've seen, uh, I, think, I, I think our space is, I think the crypto space in general is uh, is pretty poor at sort of acknowledging the wins it's had over the journey that I've been in the space, and it's pretty quick to dismiss some of the tech that's here to stay and has a real stay in power, stay in power and has been super successful. Um, you know, the first one of those that I put in that sort of category is stablecoin. Well, I, I don't think, and and you'll probably get it given your background, but I don't think most people in crypto understand just how groundbreaking stablecoin tech and what is yeah unashamedly an unsexy use case but just how incredibly disruptive that is you know as someone that's grown up in this part of the world and spent a whole bunch of time through southeast asia asia and other jurisdictions you know i don't think a lot of the world gets that you know how difficult it is for small users to access us dollars and so the ability for a a small user or an investor or whoever they may be in a small Southeast Asian country has never had access to US dollars or a US dollar type bank account before stable coins came along. And so the ability for them to use a phone app and have $5 of US, $5 US dollar stable coin on their phone and be able to move that at a fraction of a cent 
is an extremely disruptive thing for the world's financial sort of infrastructure and, and how the crypto car just sort of moves on and doesn't sort of give those sort of that, those disruptive things, the, 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 the credit that's there. And then you look forward to then DeFi came along and we've got things like Uniswap or SushiSwap where you effectively democratize the provision of liquidity. And yeah, again, something that you sort of understand that the, the order books on exchanges have become the domain of, you know, a very few and fortunate group of investment banks and hedge funds, right? And so the ability of people to earn money from their capital but from providing liquidity hasn't been available for small users for probably 10 to 15 years. And now along came these kind of crazy ideas about Uniswap and SushiSwap, SushiSwap, uh, Uniswap originally, and this bizarre idea that, you know, we're just going to source liquidity from whoever wants to provide it, which is a, you know, which is an extremely disruptive kind of thing, right? But they've just achieved that. And they've, they've provided, again, this completely new way of looking at exchanges and the ability to trade assets. And you know, stepping back to, the, you know, where I sort of started that, that discussion we had around, you know, what gets me excited about this place, probably the things that I first sort of saw, it was, yeah, that sort of disruptive idea that just would never happen in traditional markets. No one in an investment bank would ever have that idea because they just don't have, you just get sort of ring-fenced and you just kind of get taught in the ways that this is how things have always been done. You can't think of the idea of providing a completely open liquid market where anyone can sort of provide that liquidity. And then we come to our sort of latest iteration through the cycles and this you know, idea of things called NFTs, right? And again, it's just a, a validation, I guess, of our original view that this space has been really good at bolting on new use cases as it sort of moves through time like any disruptive tech does. We start with, you know, Bitcoin and that sort of transfer of value. We move to stable coins and ERC-20 tokens. We move to DeFi and each one of these is getting more complex, right? And more complex and more potential energy generating activity. We move to DeFi, which proves that you can you know, build compl complex apps using this technology. And then we have this sort of crazy left field idea around NFTs that just sort of seems insane at the start, but we've now bolted that on as a huge potential use case that has a whole bunch of new kind of users to the space and a whole lot of new sort of applications possible uh, in the space of a year or two. But again... There's also yeah. a failure of imagination, right? Because everybody just sees what it is. So it starts with like punks and like, Nobody really cares, and there's generative art going on. They think it's an art thing. Then it's a bunch of monkey JPEGs. And everyone's like, well, <laughs> it's just a bunch of blokes all getting together and buying this stuff. But it's actually none of those. It's that all of those things and none of those things. It's the ability to have a contract, an individual contract, which gets stored in the blockchain and is transferable and proven ownership. And that, to me, sounds like the biggest scalable thing you can imagine. Correct. And I mean, that's the, the, the core genesis of everything that this tech is here to achieve. Uh, and you'll get, you know, these crazy use cases, as you said, a monkey JPEG to a stable coin. But the genesis and the underlying kind of, I, I guess, the underlying sort of core thesis that makes them possible is exactly what you mentioned. And that's a completely scalable idea. And that, you know, that's what we got excited about when we built our portfolios, the, the, the applications of that's where that can add value and add utility and disrupt, uh, but, yeah, always limitless. Just like you know, like just like the internet started off as this technology where you could see these kind of tech guys writing these blogs um, and posting them on the internet for anyone to read, which back then was a hugely disruptive, hugely disruptive idea. And I remember going down to internet cafes on that old, where you pay a couple of bucks, get a coffee, and get an online connection at a computer and read this sort of blog that was not hugely informative, but you were kind of excited about the tech. 
uh, probably more so than the content. And then we saw this sort of revolution of sort of broadband that suddenly made that content actually real alive, made it better than the other solutions that are out there. And we went from this sort of paper that got delivered to your door every day to this, what started out as a blog, then became a newspaper that suddenly had color photos updated every couple of minutes and then started to have video. And that was that kind of that, that step that we we're looking for where the utility just drags the users as opposed to the tech. Um, and that's that. That's the sort of the disruptive potential. But then you look at that and you go, well, it didn't stop there. It's completely re remade things like supply chain, right? Like it doesn't, disruptive tech just doesn't find one sector and stop. It works its way through an economy. And I guess the example we use is it's kind of moved from blogs to supply chains in the space of like 15 to 20 years, completely remade the world's economy. And the complexity of that one person blog to that supply chain integration is insane, but that takes time. And, that's the way disruption works through an economy. So where's your hunch where it comes from? Because I look at DeFi. DeFi is amazing, completely unusable to the average person. And if you try and simplify it, you create, a, you create CeFi, which ends up blowing up because you're sourcing leverage in different ways. Um, a lot of this stuff is still unusable. Even Uniswap, amazing, but it's just not easy. So where do we get to the point where it suddenly becomes just an intuitive way of moving stuff around or staking stuff or doing whatever it is that you want to do because we're so far away still from that. Yeah, again, we are. But then, you know, I think about how, how much better it is than it was in 2017 as well. And I think, I think you've got to build the infrastructure before you build the usability. And I think that's the stage we've been going through. And I think Uniswap's a good example of that, the, 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 the infrastructure and the ideas being fleshed out of built and is quite incredible. Um, and then on top of that, now you have Uniswap launching a new wallet, which I haven't used as yet, but I think is, you know, it was in the market about three days ago or opened to users about three days ago. The, the ability for, for, for that wallet now to abstract away a lot of the hard things that are in Uniswap, I think is the next stage that we're really excited about. And there's a bunch of things we've invested on, we invested in on the VC side and the like where we're starting to see that same sort of you know, focus around, let's take it from that tech that's harder to use and let's make it so everyone can use it. And, you know, there's an investment we've made in a, in a project called Biconomy that's looking to, you know, looking to do exactly that through things like cashless transactions. You know, a good example is like people in crypto have got used to or understand the concept to, you know, when you're transacting on the Ethereum chain, you need to have this thing called ETH in your wallet before you can do that. And that's the answer. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah, that we, we just take that as understood. But to your point, to a new user, it's like, why do I need something else in my wallet to send to you? And how do I get that wallet? thing? Yeah, how do I get that? Why do I need that? What's this ETH thing? Why do I need that first before I can send that? And, you know, projects like Biconomy and there's a whole bunch of other people focusing on similar sorts of things have said, well, why don't we abstract that away? If you've got US dollars, you should be able to pay fees in US dollars. And why don't we write some capability to effectively convert a small part of that transaction to ETH so that the user doesn't need that? And it's just simple things like that that take away some of the complexity that to a person that's, you know, loves the tech and is evolved in the space seems like just a given. But for a new user, it's, it's just a complication they don't need. And that's where we see a whole bunch of growth now. And that's not completely dissimilar to how, you know, how the internet revolution kind of happened either. You're going to build the framework and the infrastructure first before you focus around sort of scaling that and usability on top of it. Yeah, I'm really interested to see what Coinbase does with this new wallet. You've seen this wallet as a service idea. 
Yeah, I think that I think that's sort of interesting. I think Coinbase is in, a, for, from our perspective, like we we, would, we don't invest in equities, and of course, but you know, Coinbase, we're a customer and a user, and we're actually a pretty big fan of their business. We think they're in a really good spot. I think personally, I think yeah, what we've been through over the last sort of twelve to eighteen months is a validation of that sort of that public market path they've gone down in terms of disclosure and auditability, auditability, and those sort of things, and. You know, from my perspective, having lived through the financial crisis, I sort of feel like they're in that sort of JP Morgan spot, right, where they can sort of build that sort of fortress type approach. They're sort of real institutional kind of fortress where you know people like us go to because they've got the they've got the balance sheet, they've got the they've got the disclosure that their peers they have, and so I think they're really well placed. But it's now then scaling that opportunity using both their retail base and their institutional base through things like their wallet that they're rolling out. So we actually think they're taking that. We think they're in a pretty good spot at the moment for the next few years. Yeah, I do too, because you've taken out all the competition. These guys have capital, are innovating. They've hired really smart people. The guys who run the institutional business, I chatted to them yesterday, interviewed them yesterday. Uh, just good quality ex-JP Morgan, ex-Goldman guys, really know what they're building. And then they're building the applications layer. They've got their own layer too. It's like, huh, you guys are really doing something different now. They've yeah, really, they, you know, because people thought of them as just another retail broker. They're nothing like that at all. No, and I think you know, yeah, we think the service they give give to us as an institution institution in the space is is sort of first rate. To your point, that the people on the other end of the line understand our business exactly perfectly and and sort of you know, help us out and add value exactly where you'd expect a sort of sophisticated institutional salesperson to to, to, to be. I think the uh, I think the the, the the their their disclosure. Their ability just to be a public company with audited and disclosable accounts, as small a as that is, that I mean, that, like, I it is a big why, deal but... in crypto, right? Like, and look, yeah, running institutional funds in this space, I understand how complex and how hard it is actually to get audits in this space. And so, I don't, you know, it's not it's not a lack of will on a lot of people's part. It's just extremely hard to get audited and firms engaged and committed in this space. And through both history and I guess and persistence, Coinbase is in that spot, right? And they've got. You know, they've got gap audited accounts by a big four auditing firm and they've got a NASDAQ listing. And so, yeah, when, when I have discussions with institutional investors about, you know, how do we manage custody, um, you know, we use Coinbase and I can give them those accounts to say, this is the counterparty that we've got risk against. And, you know, as odd as that is, that's kind of the only one, the only one you can really do that for in crypto at this point in time. And that's a, that's a key differentiator for them, I think. How forward. do you deal with, I mean, you're mainly long only, so you're not, multiple different types of trading strategies but how does this hedge fund market deal with the fact that there's one derivative counterparty which is binance i mean basically <laughs> yeah you know, I it's, think it's, not, it's, it's fine for you you've got coinbase right you've got coinbase prime broking you can get access to some of the services like that but just the general kind of short shorting of stuff or whatever it is or you know getting yield or whatever i mean there's one counterpart now yeah, I think we, um, yeah, I think your opening comments, true of us as, as, as long only, as long only guys, we're in the sort of fortunate position that, you know, we can store our assets in custody and wait for that sort of re-rating revaluation that, 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 that we've invested on. Um, and so we, 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 we stay off exchanges. We've always said that both at a, at a, at a, at a I guess, a, a policy level of the firm, but also as a mandate level of the firm, we can stay off exchanges, right? I think your point's true around at this point in time, but I think that's also the opportunity. We're an investor in VYDX, right, which is a decentralized derivatives exchange. 
And that's the opportunity for the, for the investors of Binance to provide that that sort of decentralized exchange infrastructure. And, you know, they've been the most, what I'd say is the most successful uh, decentralized exchange at building an experience that's extremely similar to a Binance in terms of their easy, ease of use, ease of kind of quantum click trading. Um, and so we think that's where the growth comes to the counterpoint to that, that, that reliance on that sort of monster, monster centralized counterparty. Now that doesn't mean that they take away finance of business and, 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 and there's no point that there's no place for centralized exchanges because there, there always will be in our view, but we think the industry is way skewed that way at the moment versus where it should be with, you know, decentralized exchanges picking up a large part of that volume. And, now, if anything, if, it, if there is a positive to come out of the last sort of six months of 2022, it was the reaffirmation of why decentralized trading technology is important. So the US seems to now want to take crypto out of the banking system. You know, as we're speaking yesterday, Silvergate went under. There's becoming fewer and fewer options for banking. I don't know, is that, do you see that globally? Do you see it in Australia or is it less of a problem? And, I mean, we've seen this before. Crypto has been shut out a couple of times. So it's not new, but how do you see that bit playing out? Because that's getting everybody very nervous again right now. Yeah, I think that's been a, to, to be frank, that's been a that's been a problem in the space since day one, since we started. So, yeah, we, we have problems getting banking. We are a silver gate client. We have problems getting banking back in 2017. And to be honest, it's been difficult through that whole kind of six-year journey. And so we've kind of, tried to build resilience in our business in terms of multiple banking partners to try and take away that risk. But it has been, a, you know, it, it's been there, it's been in the background the whole time I've been in the space and it, and unfortunately doesn't appear that it's going to go away anytime soon. And, and to be honest, that's kind of part of the reason we got that growth in stable call. Well, like if banking was easy, if banking was accessible, you wouldn't have had the growth or the reliance on stable coins that we've now got. And so the industry adapts in a way... Also, it makes it more innovative, right? If you're shut out and there's enough people who want to do it, they innovate. Yeah, and I think, and I think that's true. And it's kind of you have the necessity to come up with new solutions, and that's kind of where stable coins came from, and, and, and to a degree. And you know, I think one of the one of the interesting things I think that's a little bit different around this space um, is the global tension that you have between competing jurisdictions. And yeah, you know, I think back to 2017 when I was setting up the business, and what and one of the one of the calls I made on my own portfolio in terms of doubling down was, if you remember back in sort of mid-2017, Japan passed a whole bunch of legislation effectively classifying crypto as legal tender in some, in some part back then. Um, actually, that day actually doubled my exposure at a personal level to the space because to me, it kind of took out the risk that I wouldn't be able to get my money out of the space. I saw it back at that point. Before that day, there was a risk that you could be kind of stuck in the system forever. Post that point, it kind of looked to me like there was always at least a yen dot. There was at least a yen exit, right? And that's a big step change from where yeah. we, from from where we were the day before. And to me, that was a you know that that took a lot of risk off the table, and you know took the, took the step in terms of putting a lot more capital in off the back of that. Now we've come a long way since then, but this continues to be the struggle. I'm a look not being a U.S. citizen. I guess I take a, a maybe a more global view of their position or where they sit today. I think they need to be careful about risking, you know, the, 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 the prime position the US dollar has in this market. Um, you know, I think 
if you looked at it with a you know with a cynical view, you could you could say you know the first best out, the best case outcome from a monetary perspective was that crypto never existed. Um, the second best outcome from a US perspective was it exists, but it trades against a US dollar as the prime currency that it's traded against. And so again, you know, if this asset class succeeds and it grows into anything like I expected to grow into, it'll drag the US dollar into new places rather than into new grounds. And we've kind of seen that with stable coins. Now, when you move through Southeast Asia, you see people using tether in jurisdictions where you never saw US dollars before. In a way, it's been that kind of that sort of first wave of pushing the US dollar into new markets. And let's be let's be frank, they need new buyers of US dollars given the deficits that they're running. And yeah, you know, so I think the US is in a in, in an incredible position of building that kind of almost that kind of new sort of petrodollar type system where they become the kind of core currency against your new asset class and. I think to be, they need to be careful that at risk though, because there is alternatives, right? That it wasn't ordained that this asset class had to trade against the US dollar from day one. I'm mean, like, it could have had another currency that became that sort of primary currency that it was benchmarked against, and it's just been the US dollar to date. But if that I wonder gets if too the hard, Chinese try and because the Chinese have used it for capital flight, so they've kind of liked the stable coin, right? It's been a it's been very useful for them. They get money out. Southeast Asians get money in, and it's kind of this nice kind of two-way flow. But what happens if Binance kind of scaled a RMB stablecoin because it's pegged to the dollar? Yeah. It's I think kind of like a cheeky way of the Chinese financing themselves potentially. Yeah, or a Hong Kong dollar. Like a Hong Kong dollar stablecoin would make a bunch of sense, right? It's a, it's a currency, again, pegged around the dollar, and it's a currency that most people in the world, particularly in the finance world, are used to get Binance hate. And, you know, if I was to look around the world as a, as a key competitor for potential US dollar, it would be, you know, Swiss, for stable coin, it would be Swiss, Swiss franc and Hong Kong, Hong Kong dollar. Now, the Swiss franc has a problem with negative rates, and so it becomes kind of super expensive in a stable coin construct. But the Hong Kong dollar sits in a pretty good spot, some of the points you mentioned, plus that sort of that sort of already ingrained in the sort of the global financial system. So, And the Chinese are ramping up Hong Kong again in crypto terms. Yeah, and I think that's the yeah, that's the interesting thing as we've watched the you know the, the, this US frenzy of regulatory activity over the last sort of month or so. The counterpoint to it is you know Hong Kong kind of opening and and then you know the market that dominated crypto when I first entered the space seems to be kind of awakening from a few years sleep. And uh, I think the Hong Kong regulatory landscape that comes in and you know the start of June is extremely exciting for the space and and, and it provides that nice kind of counterpoint. And to, to, to be honest, that sort of competitive tension that the tech needs to make sure the regulators don't overreach. Yeah, because I think we've got decent regulations in Singapore. Hong Kong looks like it's coming. Middle East is pretty good. Switzerland's good. Europe's okay. UK looks like they want to ramp up because they can see that old London-New York competition. New York, uh, London's lost it for a long time, for over a decade, decade and a half. And they're like, okay, if if the US doesn't want to do this, We'll do it. Yeah, and I think in, in Hong Kong, you know, it's had a tough couple of years, right? Like, you know, through COVID and the like. So the ability for them to potentially launch and get a you know, much stronger foothold in the new asset class, it's got a whole bunch of growth. And let's be honest, there's not reams of growth in the traditional financial sector anymore. I'd say at some point, you know, the jurisdictions, institutions take the view and get their head around the risks and see that, you know, growth is growth. They need to find it. And, and, and crypto is... One of the only things in financial services that can offer the potential growth. Now, we also look at you know the downside as an institutional investor, like the fees we pay 
as an institutional investor in crypto would make traditional providers of custody services and trading services eyes water in terms of their magnitude. But that's the that's the opportunity that drags new service providers and and and, and, and forces through that sort of regulatory change as they sort of want to enter a space where there's growth and there's actual revenue at a very newly made. Now, I'm going to ask you the last, it's a ludicrous question. What risk worries you? I mean, we've blown up every single thing. We've had it banned in China. We've had it banned in India. We've got the US going after it. We've got crypto banks shutting down. So I don't know what else is left apart from nuclear war, but I need to ask you the question is, what would keep you up at night? Yeah, I think uh, to your point, we've kind of, um, and, and you know, as long as long as guys, we get pretty thick skin, right? So we kind of, you know, we, 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 we're long, we're, we're long through thick and thin and, and, and we're long through, you know, some of those yeah, incredible risks that you mentioned. I think the, you know, the nice thing for us is being long, those risks have paid off. So we've been rewarded on the upside and that's the, that's the, I guess that's the, the proof to the equation of why it was worth taking those risks and living through years like we did in 2018, 2022. Um, and, and to me, that's the, uh, that, 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 that's the reward that justifies finally that happening. To me, what keeps me awake at night um, is, you know, dedicating, building, building our business around this space on a vision that this would disrupt and change the world in a whole bunch of ways. What keeps me awake at night is that that doesn't happen. Now, that would be the only thing that kind of really worries me about the space, that it can't take that leap from that kind of disruptive core sandboxy type tech into a real main mainstream adoption, mainstream disruptive technology. That would be the probably largest waste of human endeavor because the amount of people, and you know, it's it's sucking in the best investment bankers, hedge fund managers, technologists, developers, culture people, artists. I mean, my, I mean, everybody's like, this is the thing. It will be probably the largest waste of human endeavor in history, which I'm sure some, some naysayers will say, like <laughs> Noriel Rubini will say, yeah, exactly, yeah. that's the point. I just don't get it. There's too many, far too many people. And, it, and it's, yeah, it's the same wave we saw in the sort of late 90s, early 2000s in the tech space. We saw the brightest and the, and the brightest and the most sort of innovative and the most committed move to the space and kind of force that we will make it happen. And I guess, you know, whilst we love, you know, Bitcoin and what it's achieved, we've been, you know, we've been a, what we'd say is a, you know, we've been very much an altcoin buyer through our journey. Um, and it would be very disappointing to us if Bitcoin was the only sort of su survivable or growth asset that came out of this. And so we've always had a view that this needs to remake the world in a whole bunch of different ways. And we've seen glimpses of that through DeFi and we're starting to see glimpses of that through what NFTs can be. To me, that's the thing that this, that, that that's what needs to happen to make this journey worthwhile. And that's the, I guess that's the thing that keeps me awake at night. The, the, the risk of that doesn't happen, that the space doesn't that scale. Our, our entire hypothesis is wrong. Yeah, which I don't believe in. Or, yeah, I wouldn't be doing what we're doing. But I don't think that rests upon regulatory action. Like, I don't think a regulator can make that not happen. You know, that's more, that's much more of an entrepreneurial developer engineering level that makes that happen. Regulations change over time. Regulation lags. You've got multiple jurisdictions where the space can pick up and run with it. Um, so I don't think that's that's that, that's reliant on any regulatory outcome or any market outcome. That's really just reliant on the on the I, on the IP that's come to the space or, or the entrepreneurial spirit that's come to the space and their their resilience to see through cycles. There was a massive rush of VC. I can't remember what it was. Sixty billion over like an eighteen month period. You know, yes, there's a bunch of people going to run out of cash, and that's the function of the cycle. 
But that's a lot of money that got given out to a lot of entrepreneurs who are building products in a bear market when they should be building products, when you're not distracted. You just kind of get on with that. So it kind of is very interesting to see what we get the other side of this. Yeah, we've we've been um, we've been uh, we've been excited about the flow we're seeing on the VC side in terms of new ideas and new entrepreneurs coming to the space. I think, in a way, crypto had a pretty bad twenty twenty two, but it wasn't you know it wasn't Robinson Crusoe, right? Like there's a tech Web two didn't have a great year either. So so the relativity is to take the leap from Web two to Web three, which is where a whole bunch of entrepreneurs come from for the crypto space. The relativity stays as good today as it did back in twenty twenty one, because that. That job you've got on Snapchat or Facebook or wherever your stock's down eighty percent. So yeah, and your job security is not what it was eighteen months ago, right? So that entrepreneurial spirit, that 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 sort of push to take that leap, uh, is as strong, if not stronger, where crypto is today, where prices are today, even where it was say eighteen months ago. And so we've seen that continued flow of entrepreneurs running to the space, and you've got that whole ideological overlay that people miss and. You know, that's an important part for an old guy like me to make sure I stay across. And we do that by employing a bunch of sort of young, motivated guys in this space that are, you know, dedicated to making this happen, making sure that we stay not just across, you know, the investment capability here, but what the whole technology is trying to achieve at that sort of much bigger ideological level. So, my friend, let's just wait and see how this plays out now. You know, it's the... We both think the low's in. Who the hell knows? Um, I had a good conversation with Chris Baniski as well. I don't know if you know yeah, Chris. Yeah, okay. You know, I know Chris is a smart guy. He's a smart guy. Very actually. smart, very considered. He's pretty much of the same view. We could all be wrong together, and that's fine. That <laughs> won't be the first time. It won't be the last time. But uh, let's wait and see how it plays out from here. Because uh, Yeah, well, let's hope you're the 